Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. We're now entering the fourth school year that will be affected by COVID-19. What should we expect? What have we learned so far? And does anyone still care? What should we be keeping our eyes on as this new year rolls around? Involving safety protocols? Is it school spending? Student behavior? The teacher shortage? The next round of vaccines? It's anybody's guess. But to discuss these questions and more, I invited my colleague, John Bailey, back onto the podcast for a conversation about the coming school year. At AEI, John studies technology and education. And since the start of the pandemic, he has written over 550 installments of his COVID-19 policy update substack. I found it to be super helpful, and it makes sure that John stays up to snuff on all things COVID-19. John, welcome to the report card. It's so great to be back with you again, Matt. So, John, there are a lot of folks that could have a conversation about back to school, but you are the best person to have that conversation with. And again, it's because your COVID-19 policy updates daily. You send this thing out and I read it. Uh, I know a lot of other people who kind of rely on it. And, uh, you know, so just to start with, I mean, this is a, a way that you are kind of aggregating a lot of things that have to do with COVID generally, but specifically COVID in schools. Just real briefly, how'd that thing start? No, it's a great question. It actually, I mean, all this was accidental. It was not ever meant to be a newsletter. It was a Slack channel at the uh, one of the philanthropies that I work at. And then when that, in the early days of COVID, if you remember, like states were closing schools and they were saying, we're going to stay closed for two weeks or one week, and maybe we'll reopen. And you had a bunch of philanthropies offering resources. And so to keep track of all that, we had a Slack channel. That grew to be too much. And so I got asked to do it as a newsletter. And then that got shared out with a, another larger group of philanthropies, about 40, who kept asking other people to get added to it. And so uh, over time, we just moved it over to Substack to kind of make it easier to, to manage for the list standpoint. But it, it's become this sort of uh, mechanism in which to kind of share sort of updates on what's going on with the federal government, with uh, different activities at states, with COVID research in general, all kind of with a lens and a filter of uh, how it impacts children and schools and uh, and now I'm increasingly uh, about resolving some of the learning loss. Um, and, uh, and like you said, we're, it, it's been interesting. The other thing it has is with 555, it gives you almost a daily chronicle of, uh, of the pandemic. Uh, you can go back to any point in time and sort of look at what was going on at that time in terms of different decisions and different research that was coming out. And hopefully that's going to be useful uh, to researchers and to some book authors as they, they publish some of their publications coming up. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the the compendium published uh, <laughs> in the, the spring. All right, so John, we're uh, we're back to school, and in a lot of places, uh, and in a lot of headlines, it's like, hey, we're, we're pretty much back to normal, right? Now, I think that it's important to kind of look at this sort of historically. And if you went back in the COVID nineteen policy updates, you would see that like two summers ago, this is like right after the initial shutdowns earlier in the summer, people were like, man, we've been down to the, the, we've bent down the curve, right? Remember that when that was the phrase, we bent down the curve and this thing's going to be in the rear view this next year, we're going to be able to catch up and 
this has been arduous, but it's mostly over. And that certainly turned out to not be the case, right? And then the next summer, right, we had sort of the same thing. COVID cases had been trending down for a long period. And this was before Delta came up. And we were like, oh, yeah, we're going to get back to school and so forth. And then Delta came and that, again, certainly not the case. Now, this year we made it into the school year. In many places, school has started. So we've made it further without that huge rise. But it's not like COVID cases are at zero. It's not like it's over. So like with that context, is it, in your view, is it too much to hope that, right, we're we're back to normal in schools? Well, it feels like we're mostly back to normal. I mean, I, I actually think a lot of schools were moving in that direction. We saw a number of governors, Governor Yonkin in particular, back in July, sort of announced a lot of relaxation on COVID protocols that the CDC only sort of endorsed a week ago. But, and a lot of that sort of eliminates uh, all the different complexities that schools were wrestling with, with quarantines and with social distancing and whatnot. So there is this sort of feeling of getting back to normal or at least managing and living with COVID as opposed to just trying to purely contain it with uh, all these sort of really extreme measures. It is like, now to your point, like, you know, this time a year ago, everyone was sort of, Delta was just sort of emerging and you sort of saw it with disrupting school operations with school bus drivers. That's still the case. Like you're still having some of these hard to staff areas that are getting disrupted because of COVID cases. And then we also had Omicron in the fall, in the fall, well, late fall, early winter. And that was very disruptive for a lot of schools, but mostly because of all the quarantines it was, uh, it was generating. This is something that federal statistics did not capture at all. And so you had the secretary of education saying, oh my gosh, 98% of schools were open. But uh, I know when the Walton Family Foundation did a poll, they found out that most families had said their kids had missed close to 15 days of school just from September uh, through January uh, due to quarantines. That's almost a month, month of school days due to quarantines. And this was not getting captured in any of the the federal statistics. But you know this too, because Nat, you've been tracking this with Return to Learn, which was initially just tracking school closures, but now it's been doing so much more. So what are what is your data showing you in terms of like where schools are this year? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we've, we sort of saw this in a number of ways, the same, same pattern that you're kind of describing from like year to year. So the first year, right, the first full pandemic school year, we were tracking school closures. And by the end of that year, Pretty much everybody had come to school in some form or fashion, whether they were, you know, partially, but, you know, kids were back in schools or at least had, had the option. This year, we, we tracked a bunch of things, enrollments, but but we did the weekly tracking on mask mandates. And we saw sort of the same the same thing where towards the end of the year, there there was pretty much nobody that was masking. And so those things became normal. Right. So if two years ago there were a bunch of school districts that were closed a huge chunk of the year, but by the end of the year, they had petered out. And then the next year, well, that really was kind of the new normal, right? Like nobody came back with closures this past year. And this past year, there was a lot of masking. Towards the end, it's gone down. And now it seems like almost nobody's masking uh, out there. Very, very few districts are are doing it. And I'll, I'll note, we just came out with a paper using some of that masking data, just looking at towards the end of the year, COVID cases rose and the the new CDC guidelines that said, well, some of you really should have masks on. <laughs> Nobody was paying attention to that. Even the districts that had been masking all fall 
And so that, you know, we're seeing that again, like, well, the trailing end of the last year sort of set the, the stage for the next year. Of course, you know, I think you never know what's going to happen with this virus. But you mentioned, John, hey, the CDC a week ago, they they made some new changes to their guidance. What they come out with and, you know, what, what do you read from it? First of all, I, there's a couple different things. Like when they came out with guidance, I, I think it's just so emblematic of the frustration with the CDC. They came out, I mean, I think this week, 60% of students are back to school. And the CDC just came out a week ago with revised guidance. It's way too late for a lot of schools to do sufficient planning and make preparations. The right time to come out with that guidance would have been back in June. And in fact, I think the most frustrating thing is like looking at why the CDC relaxed so much of this. They, they relaxed a lot around quarantine protocols. They stuck with uh, some of their masking protocols. And you, you, you're left with wondering, well, what was the scientific sort of data or series of studies that led to this conclusion? What, what changed? And I don't think much changed. I think what changed is that, you know, Nat, you were sort of suggesting this at the beginning of the podcast, that people's just behaviors and attitudes towards COVID have changed. And I think it's difficult for the CDC to continue asking for such uh, extreme measures that seem in a lot of people's lived experience to offer very limited set of protections, but have great costs uh, on a whole variety of other facts. And that's cost to parents uh, who now have to deal with kids at quarantine and they're missing shifts at work. It's the learning loss that as every single day goes by, we see another study comes out that shows, you know, Years when we're done with this medical pandemic, we're going to have this education pandemic that is going to stretch for a generation of kids that are going to be far behind, not just in academics, but uh, potentially as they, they pursue careers in college afterwards. So that those costs, and then also the mental health costs that I think we've been seeing too, of kids struggling with depression and anxiety. And and so I, I think all that has sort of just led to this realization that we need to start learning how to live with COVID. Take adequate preparations and precautions when we can. But again, the CDC guidance, I think, came out uh, a little bit too late. The good news is that it relaxes the most disruptive protocol from the last school year, which were these quarantines. And those were the things that were keeping a lot of kids at home as opposed to learning in school. And so hopefully those that can be implemented very quickly and should minimize the amount of disruptions. But what was your thoughts, Nat, taking a look at it? Well, I mean, I think you're right. I think those quarantines were killers last year. And, you know, I do all this data work, right? 30,000 feet trying to see things as they are with very simple indicators, right? Because it's really hard to get a sense of what's going on in a big country. But I'll tell you, I think that there's been a lot of disruptions. I think that if you remember when the the May uh, school pulse survey data that NCES put out to teachers about how bad is this past year? Ben was really revealing to me. This is a, a thousands of, of schools responding. Hey, what is chronic absenteeism been like? Is, is it getting better or is it even worse this year? And there were a, on a bunch of indicators, things like, you know, student behavior and chronic absenteeism, but also just absenteeism by teachers. They were really sort of just off the charts for how how tough this past year has been. And not just like, well, COVID was bad, but like this year was worse than last year in, in many ways. And I think that that's kind of a story that that we've lost. And I think a lot of the, the things that were manifested this year 
that were uh, easy to track. I track masking because it's fairly easy to to just say, did you have the CDC masking guidelines or not in your district? But I think that those things sort of tracked with a lot of this sort of COVID cautious behavior. And the more COVID cautious you were, well, you know, more impacts uh, you had. I do think that your, you know, your comments about CDC, look, I think it would be ideal if CDC gave guidance ahead of time so that we could plan and then act on it. In a less than perfect world, CDC guidance may be a leading indicator of what's coming next. But I think CDC guidance has usually been a lagging indicator, right? It's like, right, right, when the masking guidance changed, February 25th, I think, four days before the State of the Union, even all the blue state governors were starting to say, look, we're, we're going to take down our state, yeah. our state mask point. mandates. Really good this point. is just going really long in the tooth. And, and the same thing with these changes in quarantines. I, I think it's a real problem for CDC. Long term, they've been talking about how they're going to try and restructure and, and rebuild. I, I really worry that w- if you combine sort of Americans experience with CDC guidance, plus the politicization of the whole COVID protocols, plus everybody's just pandemic fatigue, that if COVID comes roaring back in some way with some new variant that's a problem, the, the stage that is set is not good. That's that's what I worry. Yeah, I, I'm worried about that too. It's the whole cry wolf sort of scenario that, you know, and uh, I think that a lot of Americans right now feel like there's been this episode of crying wolf, that this is the wave that's going to be super bad. and And now, like, you know, God forbid, but hopefully we don't have a variant that comes back that has the mutations that does make it more transmissible and also sends people to the hospital and creates uh, more uh, higher levels of mortality. Like if that happens and the CDC has to ratchet up uh, requirements again, I think a lot of people are just not going to trust it. I think there's a, the other thing that's been, I think at odds is that and this, this came out way back right around New Year's when the CDC was coming out with, well, if you test positive, what should you do in terms of when you can reenter society or go back to school? And they had this, they had a whole series of really complicated things. If you were a healthcare worker, you had to do this. If you were an average person, and if you were a student, you had to do this, you had to wait five days, and then you could go back and wear a mask for you know another five to 10 days. And all of a sudden they've kept that but what's interesting is that they're still not requiring a negative test, even though it, what in a growing body of research is showing is that these newest variants of Omicron, you could be infectious way past five days. And it's looking like it could be as, as long as eight and even as long as 10 days in some cases. And it's part of the reason you're seeing when President Biden and then when First Lady Jill Biden both tested positive, they waited until they had two negative tests in order to resume their activities. And that's different than what the CDC guidance is suggesting. But I think there's a, I've been hearing a lot of epidemiologists very concerned about that, that we're choosing a one size fits all time duration that doesn't really match what the understanding of the, the virus is when it could just be, you know, again, take two negative tests in order to return back to school. But that's going to be another tension, I think, for this coming school year. So, John, one of the things that's weird about this uh, whole thing about back to school, right? We're, we're talking about back to school. 
And there's folks in Arizona and Georgia and whatever. And they're saying, uh, you're a little late. We are already back to school. And then there's a whole bunch of other states that are like, school's like three weeks away. This might be jumping the gun a little bit. And that is also uh, that's that separation of experience is also the case with people across the country and what they experience. So there's I was talking, I, I was uh, on vacation last week in uh, the great American Southwest, highly recommend, by the way. But I was, as I do, talking with education with anyone who will listen, you know, so I was like at a, at a hotel pool. My kids are swimming and I'm talking to this lady and she was like, yeah, it's been pretty much back to normal for a year and a half, right? Like, what are you talking about? Whereas some folks in D.C. here are still very on pens and needles about like, what are we going to do and how are we going to manage it? And, you know, that raises the question of like, well, when does endemic set in? Like, when do we move past sort of the pandemic period? And I would think that one thing that would help that might be some public health guidance or some sort of, I don't know, are there goalposts that we can say, well, now things are getting back to normal? Or are we, do you think that it's more just sort of human behavior that we're just waiting on and reacting to? Because when I look at, you know, what the government's putting out and so forth. Again, like the CDC stuff seems to be a lagging indicator, not leading it. So I'm not just asking, are we an endemic? I'm asking, when will we know when we're an endemic? Well, this is, you know, I think part of the part of the huge problem that we've sort of set up as the, the public health response with COVID is that, you know, the, it it is sort of seen almost at times completely arbitrary when some of these metrics get uh, trigger the enactment of different protocols. And then they just seem to be nearly as arbitrary when they get dialed back. And I know a lot of people felt that way back in uh, January when the CDC revised a bunch of these metrics. There's an element of that right now. And to your point, they seem to be reflecting public sentiment as opposed to sort of uh, which is not what you want. You don't want a total reflection of like where the public is. You want to be able to sort of say like, no, this is like our best understanding of the best ways of protecting against the disease. Um, but I don't know. I'm with you, Nat. Like I, a lot of this, it, it feels like we're moving uh, as a society into the endemic phase, not because the CDC has declared it or other public health officials have. It's just because I think pandemic fatigue is sort of kicked in and that's what's driving this. You, you see it too, like I, there's a, a bunch of things that, again, for whatever reason, we just have not seen a lot of federal response or public health officials really driving all throughout the summer and even in the spring, schools could have taken catalytic events to, to help upgrade their HVAC systems. Improving ventilation just helps protect against this current variant, but also helps prevent necessarily using masks and other these more stronger interventions in the future, but it, schools have just not been upgrading HVAC systems. You have not seen big public campaigns on increasing the vaccination rates. And I, I just was taking a look at the data right before we hopped on the podcast. And it's right now less than 5% of two to five-year-olds uh, have received at least the, their first round of the COVID vaccine. It's only 37% of five to 11-year-olds. And once you get above that, it's a, it's 70% for teens, which is good, but it I think a lot of parents out there are struggling with um, whether or not they should get their kids vaccinated or not. That answer is not going to come on a podcast like this. It's going to come from talking with pediatricians, but you just have not seen the administration or the CDC or the FDA sort of lead 
a public um, education campaign to help people with making the best decisions about vaccines for their kids. Yeah. And, you know, by and large, school districts are punting on this, too. Right. So um, I except for D.C. Well, except for D.C., right? D.C. But I, I think in D.C., right, it's just uh, it's just older kids. It's not the younger kids that are required. But D.C.'s it's standing out because D.C.P.S. said, look, if you're if you've got an older kid, you know, we've been requiring vaccinations for measles, mumps, rubella and all these other things for, you know, forever. And this is just a new one. It, it has been in the news. Maybe we should get a vaccine for it. But they stand out. That that seems to me strange. I mean, of course, there are there are two kinds of people, John. There are people who are more concerned about the pandemic than I am, and they're just crazy uh, for for their worry. And then there's people who are less concerned than I am, and they are just total risk takers. I'm I'm right in the sweet spot. But I don't consider myself sort of uh, you know particularly polar in one way. It doesn't strike me though that that vaccine requirements should be controversial. But generally speaking, they are. And I think that the reason that we know that is because it's not like some subset of school districts just in red states or or, or just in uh, particular areas aren't requiring this. I mean, the vast majority are not. What do you think it is that has gotten us to this point when pretty much all the public health officials are singing in absolute unison, we should get kids vaccinated? Well, it, you know, it's interesting. I think you're right about that. In fact, California was going to be one of the leading states to do a vaccine requirement through law. They That never moved forward. And then you, you were going to see San Diego and Los Angeles have a vaccine mandate. They relaxed that. I think a couple of things happened. One was that, you know, when the data came back on the vaccine effectiveness for uh, both Pfizer and Moderna, it it was good, but it was not great. It's great relative. I shouldn't sort of downplay it. But compared to kind of the protections you get as an adult, they weren't at that level. And that introduced a little bit of a debate within the, the epidemiology community. I remember watching some of the ACIP meetings uh, with the CDC and also with the FDA. There was a little bit of a more vigorous debate than what the final vote on recommending the vaccines were. And it was because, again, it was a little bit of uh, not as clear of a case as to the the benefits of this as it were if you're vaccinating an 80 year old or a 70 year old. It does seem to give some protection, and that's good. You know, there's a, I think some open questions now around boosters, but also a lot of families have just been saying that kids seem to have been uh, spared the worst of this particular virus in a way that, you know, again a lot of pandemic planning had not uh, sort of assumed a lot of uh, H1N1 sort of scenarios you you sort of see it's the opposite. It's where adults are spared the worst and kids bear the brunt of it. It's been the flip side of this. But I think that has like made a lot of parents sort of say too, like, is is a vaccine really needed for them right now? And uh, should they wait until it gets officially approved? Should they wait and see what it um, if there's any other adverse side effects that come out? I think some of these rare heart conditions has also kept some parents on the sideline. Those are all questions that are really difficult, and they're not going to be answered by a government official. I think it's going to be answered by families talking with their their trusted pediatrician, who they see as sort of above the fray of all the political debate and can uh, help them make the most sense of this. So looking at, at this from the back school lens, I mean, you know, all this could change, but, you know, we found doing all this tracking of masking 
and before that of remote schooling or, or hybrid models is that whatever districts sort of started out with in a given year, they stayed with for a long, long time until it just sort of imploded, usually because COVID subsided later in the year. So wait, now that's interesting. Are you saying that if they started open, they stayed open mostly? If they yes, yes. started remote, then they were more likely to go back and that's, I mean, that's, that's interesting. That, that's right. Well, uh, the staying open or, or going remote was one thing, but uh, between September and the end of January last year, less than one in five students were in a district that switched its mask policy. So it, it either had masks or didn't for that whole time until Omicron fell. And, uh, you know, when we looked at, at this, we took the last week, we put out a paper two weeks ago, just before I went on vacation. We did this paper where we looked, well, what would the masking guidance from CDC have been if they had used the current guidance, which is different levels of hospitalization and, and so forth, prior to when they changed that guidance? So basically from September to February of last year, for all those months, they said 100%. And then when they said, okay, well, it can vary depending on your local guidance, it dropped to 37% of students. And like two weeks later, it was like a 10%. Well, if you had applied the variable rules, the rules that were based on your county rates, there was 10 weeks from October to December when more than 60% of kids were in districts that the CDC would have said, you don't need to mask. So, you know, these... These variability is it's partly due to a lack of response on school districts. It's also partly due to the fact that we had sort of public health guidance that was aspirational, maybe, rather than sort of guiding as the case may be. But I guess my question now is like what what are districts doing now? What precautions are in place that are that are designed to mitigate the threat? Yeah, I mean, I I mean what I'm seeing is, um, again, I think some districts are trying to get back to as normal as they could. Um, they were all wrestling, uh, and I think we're still seeing some some uh, wrestling with what are the criteria by which should enact uh, masks, and also in in rare cases school closures. I just heard uh, about a school that that ended up closing for a day or two in part because like the number of kids who were testing positive, it was like a, close to 5% of their student population. Uh, but uh, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, LA Unified was in a debate as to whether or not they were going to start the school year with uh, a masking requirement as a result of that CDC community threshold. So I don't know, it, feel, it feels like schools are trying to get back to normal and they're trying to be a little bit more better intention with what are the, the, the criteria by which will trigger the enactment. Uh, of some of these protocols, but also it sounds like they're not going to be infinite protocols. There's there's a lot more attention being paid to the exit criteria. How do, how do we make sure that they're temporary, not uh, not long term? But uh, I don't know. Like I haven't seen any any good sort of systemized studies on this or, or surveys yet. I'm, I'm sure we're going to read about it first on the Return to Learn Tracker, the the fall 2022 edition, as you like look back at it. Well, I'll tell you we. You know, it's interesting because we're not tracking this year. We we could track mask mandates, but we're not going to. And the, the same reason that we didn't track school closures last year, because I was pretty sure, first of all, it takes a lot of work to track, uh, you know, 8,500 districts every week. And I just don't think it's going to happen. 
Um, now, what we had last year was like, you know, long term mask mandates. They stuck around. They affected a lot of kids. So it was it was worth You know, the juice was worth the squeeze on tracking this year. It looks like we could track and do a ton of work to capture something that just doesn't happen very often. But what you're saying about, well, it'd be great if districts were paying attention to ways that they could trigger them when they need them and take them down as soon as they they don't come up with with good mechanisms to to do that. That makes a ton of sense to me anyway. But it also seems like for that to work, we may have to have some sort of politically brave districts that are willing to do that, right? Willing to say, look, we're going to mask for the next two weeks because we see an upsurge in our numbers and then we're going to take it down. And if that could become normal, that seems like it would be a pretty good way for districts across the board to respond, right? Like threat increasing, we're going to do something. But we haven't seen a lot of that. And I worry that what we're actually going to see is more of this kind of like failure to respond in any way, but instead sort of make a decision, stick to your guns and, and ride out the storm and with the storm seemingly subsided in many, in many ways, that's a pretty politically palatable way to go. Well, and it's also, I mean, the thing I worry about, this goes back to the, the crying wolf a bit too, is that we don't need quarantine policy right now, but there, there could always be a case that sometime in the winter, we see another wave of the virus that does need a more stricter sort of quarantine. But I'm not seeing schools have taken sort of the time, this sort of lull in the storm, as you were saying, to make the adequate preparations that should they need to teach kids remotely again, whether it's for a day or two or for a week, that they have some of those those mechanisms and those partnerships in place to be able to turn that on and off kind of quickly. And so I, I don't know. I, I, I worry, I think, in the rush to kind of get back to normal, which is totally understandable and what we need to do. We've also not made the most of this time, this lull in the storm, so to speak, to uh, to shore up some of our precautions should they and mitigation measures should they need to be invoked again. It's the same thing. That I, I'm in Florida right now doing the podcast with you, and they they do a hurricane preparedness. And and again, it's not that they hope a hurricane hits. It's not they hope people have to get evacuated. But people people here in schools here are prepared that if it's a category one, they know what to do. If it's a category five takes more extreme measures than they're prepared for that. And it feels like that's probably part of what, you know, in Florida, they ha- they're they in the endemic phase of living with hurricanes. They, they're living with it. They live with the risk and they understand the measures and protocols to take with different levels of risk. It feels like we need that hurricane preparedness for future subsequent COVID waves too, a little bit. Maybe that's too simplistic, but that's the way I've been, been mentally sort of wrestling with it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard for, again, the different listeners in different parts of the country to sort of keep their, their finger on the pulse of how things have changed. So I'm going to have to do a little mental math here, but I think it was six months ago, almost exactly, that LAUSD, the, the same group that decided, well, we have pretty high infections, but we're not going to do masks now, uh, had just announced that they were going to stop their mask mandates for outdoor student activities. Right. Like they dropped their outdoor masks. That was just six months ago. I mean, it was very recent. So the the rapid change is, I think, striking and really striking how it's sort of taken over most schools. Most schools are looking fairly the same. We're not seeing a lot of, of variety. So the, on the question, when people ask me, are we kind of on endemic when it comes to schools? That looks to be the bets pretty much across the board. 
And that's after a couple of years where we saw a lot of variety at the, at the beginning of school. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Now it's kind of falling into, uh, it feels like season four of COVID is falling more into like a law and order episode. It's uh, it's pretty much the same same storyline every day for the most part. <laughs> Indeed. I wish I had that. Uh, I wish I had that law and order <laughs> to bring in here. Uh, all right, John, we do a section called grade it on the report card. Uh, you're the grader. I'm going to name something and I ask you to give a grade on A to F. Does that sound good? Let's try it. Operation Warp Speed. Oh, A. Why? I mean, it's just unbelievable how quickly the vaccines were, multiple vaccines were developed, tested, and approved. Back when I was in the Bush administration, we worked on the first pandemic preparedness plan. The assumptions, you can go back and read the plan. The assumptions were a vaccine wouldn't be ready to begin to be tested for 18 months. And the fact that this was done in sort of weeks and rolled out in a mere matter of months is, uh, is historic. The vaccines have not been as great at slowing transmission, but have been amazing at projecting against severe illness. Um, I, I don't think, I think we maybe have rested too much on those laurels. It would have been great to have kept seeing a Operation Warp Speed 2.0 for nasal vaccines and for some of the, um, the continued sort of vaccine innovation that we need against uh, future variants. But, but yeah, I think it's been, been pretty impressive. But why, what grade would you give them? Operation Warp Speed specifically, I'd give an I'd give an A. I mean, I think it uh, I think it was smart. It was a way to you know get the people who could do this the runway they needed to do it with. But but I just asked the questions here. I don't give any grades. So let me ask you another one here. Uh, how about and this is close but distinct the vaccine rollout. Um, that's a hard one because I I feel like rollout has two phases for it. There's the logistic phase, which I would give an A. I think Jeff Zeitz and the team at the uh, in the Biden administration deserves a lot of credit. The logistics of getting vaccines out to areas and into places that could get put into arms is immensely complicated, and the fact they were able to do that so smoothly and systematically, I, I think, goes to huge credit to that team and also to governors who were instrumental in getting it out there on the campaign to help answer people's questions and address the hesitancy. I would give a C. I just don't think we've seen uh, much from the administration. I, I, every single time you saw, you know, a president getting uh, his, his vaccine shot or a booster was a chance to do that in a bipartisan way. I think we would have, it would have been amazing had Mitch McConnell and, President Biden been on side by side. It would have been great if you had all the the former presidents like together getting their their boosters. It would have sent a message. And instead, we played right into kind of the polarized lanes a little bit, and also just have failed, I think, utterly to answer a lot of the very legitimate questions that uh, a lot of moms and dads had uh, for themselves and also for um, for their kids too. All right, the appropriateness of the public's interest in COVID right now. That's a hard one. I would give it. I would give. That's a hard. That's a hard one. I'd give it a B. I think. I think. I think folks are paying attention. I just was with a, a group of people who, again, are very busy in their day to day lives. They're very busy with stuff at work. They don't have the luxury of you and I now of being able to listen into ASIP meetings and to, to talk to you know people in podcasts and, and just 
you know, take time to learn into this. And I feel like they're asking the right questions. They want to make informed decisions and, um, but they're also just trying to live their lives and, and try to make ends meet. And I, I think that, and so I think they're trying to give that COVID as much time and attention as it deserves with a lot of other things they're wrestling with right now. And that that's with inflation it's with getting their kids back into school. It's for a lot of moms and dads right now dealing with the learning loss and can they get their kids back on track? And so I give them a B. Room Raider. <laughs> well, he rated me an eight out of 10. So, uh, but I, because I had a cord foul, which was totally legitimate. And so I'm going to give him a, I'm going to give him a 10 out of 10. I, I will say like anything that brought an ounce of joy in the midst of the pandemic, I'm going to give a pretty high score too. So that was, uh, that was that. <laughs> All right. How state governments have handled the pandemic? That's a hard one. I, I maybe a C and, and I think a C is a hard one because like it, it there's varied. I mean, I think some governors have done uh, an amazing job. I think Larry Hogan, Governor Hogan, I think Governor DeWine uh, in particular, I think there were some other ones that have just not done enough or not tried enough. Um, and then the others who like, I, I think Governor Newsom keeping the schools closed as long as what he did, I, I think is going to come back. Um, you know, generations are going to look back at that as a, a poorly informed decision. We're seeing that in Virginia, where the state assessments just came out, and I think they Virginia had like the second lowest or second fewest days of in person learning, and the the state assessment scores are just showing that uh, this is going to have generational consequences for those kids. And so, so anyway, the, I give them probably a C given the unevenness, but also in fairness to them. You know, I was just talking to a state leader and I said, gosh, when the CDC like develops their guidance, they run this value. And they said, no, they, they kind of find out about it at the same time uh, we all do. They often will maybe get a quick briefing, but the, it's not quite as close of a partnership and, and a two-way conversation as I think you need in a situation like this with a, as fluid of a uh, dynamics as what's been going on. Yeah, cu- curious. They, they have to run it by the teachers' unions first, but, uh, you know, not the state <laughs> governments. Uh, what I th- yeah, what I think happens, I think the CDC runs it past the state, the state associations, uh, which is fine, but when you have something, especially a COVID that plays out in different waves across the country, having real-time feedback um, and just it, 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 with all the money the CDC has, they should have at least one person who's a liaison with each of the states, the state health officials, the state education officials, and the governor, and, and be able to have a real-time dialogue on that. It just it seems strange to me that that's not happening right now. Substack. Oh, Substack. Well, <laughs> if I give them an A, they'll take 10% of it down to an A-. minus. Then uh, No, I love Substack. I have to admit, like I moved to Substack because I was on Mailchimp, and to be honest with you, moving to Substack cut my authoring of that newsletter down seventy percent, saved me about seventy percent of time. So, for me, it was a little bit selfish to be able. And then the list management has been great, and so people people still seem to read it. So I'll give I'll give them an A. So you cover a lot of media stories on there, so we might as well grade the the media's treatment of schooling during the pandemic. C. Yeah, I think C, there was way too much sympathy towards some of the school closures and not enough, I think, healthy 
skepticism on some of that. And, and now you see a lot of the media covering, covering these, these things that they were critiquing and criticizing, you know, a mere couple of months ago or a year ago. And so now some of that is like, it's hard, uh, I think, covering these stories that are complex, but, you know, hopefully the same way the CDC is now rethinking its own operations, hopefully, you know, we'll have some of the education press thinking about how they cover pandemics going forward too. All right. That's a wrap for Great It. Thanks, John. You're, no, you're wait, at- wait. I give I give Nat Malkus and the report card an A. Very good. Podcast. Very well, well done. <laughs> That's right in the, uh, the show notes here. We'll make sure to quote that one. <laughs> Um, so John, looking forward to this school year, uh, what are, what are you concerned about in terms of like the COVID issues that have sort of cropped up and let's hold learning loss separate. Cause that's not really fair. That's a, that, that's something to deal with, but just the operational issues that you think could continue to plague schools this, this year in a big way. You said quarantines were a big deal. Obviously school closures were a big deal. Uh, what are you worried about? I still worry about the same thing we saw this time last year, which were COVID cases taking uh, thinly staffed parts of school operations out of commission. Those, those are bus drivers, cafeteria workers, custodians, and unfortunately, teachers. And, you know, a lot of districts don't have deep bench depth that if there's, you know, a bunch of teachers out because they've been, they caught COVID, it's not like there's deep substitute pools from which to pull from. And so I, I worry there's definitely not on the school transportation route. Um, I think we're seeing that again, just having a few bus drivers out can disrupt school operations. So that worries me. Uh, I really do worry that we do not make the most of the ESSER funds and also make the most of the time to upgrade some of the HVAC systems. Cause I think that could have, given uh, some advantages as they're dealing with kind of current uh, variants this fall, but also any type of future um, variant. But, and then the last one is just like, I what I heard the most during quarantines last year is that kids were just getting sent home and that it wasn't like they were jumping right onto Zoom school. It was a lot of remote learning packets, meaning it was not very interactive. It was not very educational. It was just sort of reading some materials. And I mean, Quarantines are terrible. If you have to do them, they should be at least guaranteed to have uh, a live instructor each one of the days that the uh, the kids are their kids are learning at home. That might be too difficult for the school to do, but I, I know uh, ASU Prep Digital was offering like it was almost like a quarantine insurance program that if a school needed it, they could match them up with a live teacher. Varsity Tutors was doing the same thing, so schools could can buy that quote insurance product just to make sure that, you know, hopefully they aren't, they aren't needed, but if they are needed, uh, the kids are getting at least a live instruction every day, as opposed to just being sent home with independent reading packets. How about you? What's keeping you? I mean, you've been watching this as closely as anyone, but what are you worried about this year? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the things that I've been tracking, again, these kind of 30,000 foot things are sort of going away. Some of the things that, that quite frankly, I don't have a good means to kind of like get the data that I want but that still keep me up. I mean, one is just sort of the reports of, of student behavior. And that's a thing that, you know, old guys like me, you know, gripe about year in, year out. Well, the kids this these days are just terrible. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm what I'm really concerned about is 
disrupted schooling, and this can happen from extended school closures or just departures from normal routines, from uh, mitigation strategies that are a pain, or from the quarantines that we're talking about. All these kind of things can just get you out of the flow of schooling as a student. And for a lot of students, they've had disrupted schooling for you know, many years and they're only in fourth grade. So, right, they, they haven't got into the swing of things. And so when I think about student behavior, it's it's less like, well, Johnny's misbehaving or whoever else is, is a problem because of their behavior. And more so, we haven't grooved our stroke uh, as, as getting kids in to use to working hard, to concentrate to, yes, behaving in class, that's part of it, but uh, also just kind of cooperating with with all the things that they should be in, engaged in. I think that we still have a lot of challenges with that. Again, if if anybody, we'll put that, that Pulse survey into the show notes. It's pretty devastating reading, even just as the, like the cross tabs. Um, and on things that you've been mentioning, like substitutes, 60% of schools said substitutes were much harder last year than the year before. So not just before the pandemic, but before the first year. So I, I think a lot of these struggles are, are not going to get wrung out easily. So when you look at this, right, and when the media stories kind of look at this and they're like, well, they're pretty much back to school. They don't have mask mandates. I don't think that we should take that and say, well, you know, it's back to normal. I think normal is something you have to earn through practice, especially when you're a kid. And I think it's going to take some practice for kids to, to, to get back there. And I'm as, you know, I, I'm as aspirational about reinventing learning as uh, any kind of ed reform person would be. But I really think that, you know, building on a foundation of normalcy is just what, what we got to get to. So I am hoping and praying that what we're going to see is exactly what we're starting to see. A lot of normal that we can actually build normalcy out of, because I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, normalcy and stability. I think a lot of parents, they want stability. They just want to know. We have underestimated just how disruptive school closures and quarantines were to parents, because all of a sudden they would get a call and said, hey, your kid has to stay home for a week or two weeks. And, you know, for those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to work from home and be able to do Zoom meetings, that is annoying, but not hugely disruptive. For a lot of families that had were essential workers and had to do shifts and had to go physically to a store or to work a FedEx route, that's hugely disruptive. And it led to a lot of people dropping out of the workforce and a lot of people missing, missing work. And so I, I totally agree with you on that. So, John, uh, some of the other R2L work we've done is is on enrollments, and we came out with a paper not too long ago that just showed, wow, if, if your district was one of those that was remote a long time, you had a disproportionate number of, uh, of students lost, especially in the second year, like after the year of remote learning, a lot of people left. What's your gut on that aspect of recovery? I mean, if those kids don't come back, those are huge revenue holes for a lot of districts. But the, the, the other argument is, right, well, it's getting back to normal, so maybe kids are, will come back. What, what's your gut take? I, I think it's interesting. I think there's a couple of different things that are sort of happening. And I, I, I'm going to put the question back to you because that paper was, I think, so important uh, because right now in education circles, there's a lot of obsession over fiscal cliffs and fiscal cliffs that are 
when they say that those words, they're talking about when the federal funding runs out. But it seems like the more significant fiscal cliff that a lot of schools are going to have to wrestle with is this decline in enrollment. Because at some point, state funding formulas, Title I formulas, catch up to enrollment numbers. And when you have fewer students, it means fewer state funding and fewer Title I dollars. And that's going to lead to a lot of really uncomfortable budget conversations that, again, a lot of people have not been thinking about or talking about. Your paper was so important in elevating it. It, it feels like some of this is much more permanent than what, for me, and I'll just, and then I'm going to toss it back to you now, but like, it feels like this, some of this is a much more sort of permanent trend than just sort of a, a temporary people left. And some of that is because people have left literally uh, their areas that have moved to another state as part of remote work. Some of those families have found a niche in homeschooling or with charter schools or with private schools. I, I don't know if we know the answer entirely on, on some of this. The other thing that came out the same day that your paper did, Matt, was a, an amazing paper uh, from one of the economists over at the Economic Innovation Group that was looking at population numbers and showed that uh, children under five, that those numbers are decreasing in a number of the big urban areas. And that is a ticking time bomb for a lot of schools too, because if you don't have a lot of five-year-olds, it means you're not going to have a lot of kids rolling into your K-12 system. And again, once the funding formulas catch up with declining enrollment, that ends up inevitably leading to, to budget cuts. But you should, your paper was so important and was one of the first ones I've seen that tried to attach some budget figures, what this means for revenue. But you should talk through what you found and what it suggests in terms of some of the ticking budget time bombs that we're facing. Yeah, I mean, I, what we did in the paper was just look at enrollments, and we got enrollments for uh, 38 states, uh, district-level enrollments. Tennessee and Kentucky need to get us last year's enrollment numbers. It's only been 11 months now. Um, but in those 38 states, we just connected it to, hey, if this percentage is the new normal, what are the revenue projections? And, and not total, you know, in, in the paper, I wanted to be kind of conservative, so I just looked at state and federal revenues associated with these students. So not the, the full ticket associated with them. And we're talking about millions and millions of dollars in mid-sized districts. In New York City, it's a it's a billion dollar shortfall, just state federal share. There are, you know, and it's really interesting. It's interesting to see this play out in New York where Adams came out and said, well, you know, we're going to have to tighten our belts. It's going to be tough. And then they went back and forth with the city council and then they went back. And uh, I haven't checked since vacation where they landed, but I, I think they backfilled a lot of that with with federal money. But you're right. You you can you can swim out ahead of this fiscally for a while, but the payment's going to come due. And if you don't sort of do some gradual tightening, it's going to be a a whammy of a fiscal cliff. It's it's going to be like we have multiple layers. And the paper you mentioned about, you know, if you don't have incoming groups that are keeping your numbers as before, all of a sudden you have multiple factors that are going to make keeping your fiscal house in order incredibly uh, difficult. So, you know, I, I think the public needs to be aware of some of this stuff, right? So if you're a parent in a school district, and you're like, why did you cut these positions? Why is my arts program being cut? Well, I mean, these are the things that you have to do when you don't have as much money. Uh, and I don't see any, there's no simple way out of this. One simple way out of it is to get kids back 
right? And I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. I mean, I think there's two logics to this. One is, well, you know, in your paper, Nat, you showed that the districts that were first to come back and were the least remote, they had enrollment rebounds. And of course, this past year, everybody was more or less in person or offering in person. So that normalcy may bring these kids back. So I'm very interested to see if we see a bounce back across the board this next year. And I think that that would be good on on a number of levels. But at the same time, the same districts that were remote longer are the same districts that masked longer. And if that masking is indicative of, you know, COVID protocols that lasted a long time and exhausted parents, a lot of parents who who have made big decisions here, right? It's not like they said, well, we'll go to 7-Eleven instead of Wawa now. No, no, no. They put their kid in a new environment and switching them back is a big deal. After a couple of years, I think these get much, much stickier on a large scale. So I, I do think it's one of the things that we don't talk about that much because we've got some big deals on our plate. You know, we have the pandemic, we have current operations, we have learning loss. All those are big, big deals. But for folks running some of these big districts that have had double digit losses, I mean, the future's really sort of rough. The other hidden number in, in some of this, and you you referenced it in your paper, but it's also is the chronic absenteeism. And I think, you know, you see this in LA, LA Unified right now, where they're just seeing historically fewer kids enrolling in schools. But I, I think the superintendent came out and said something more than half the kids were chronically absent last year, meaning they met, missed more than 10% of the school days. And that's a that's another number that doesn't always impact budget, but that does impact learning loss. It impacts school operations. It, it impacts these kids and the, their and their lives too. And so that's I, you know I, I again I'm sympathetic. I think schools are wrestling with a lot. All the some of the behavior issues now that you were talking about. They're trying to figure out where some of these kids are and can they get them back into school. And then you have these kids that may or may not be showing up. They're chronically absent, and that's a whole nother different set of, of problems. It's it's a lot schools are struggling with right now. Yeah, it's true. And I think that chronic absenteeism is, it, you know, it's bad for the individual students. There's no doubt about that. If you're out 10% of the school year, that's going to take a toll. But it's also bad for their classmates and their teachers yeah. because it's harder for teachers and the coherence, uh, you know, coherence goes a long way in a school. And that interrupts the coherence of the instructional, uh, you know, sort of flow and day-to-day teaching. And that is one of the big indicators that I'm going to look for this year. And we're going to try and gather data on it to just see, are we seeing a, a long-term upswell in chronic absenteeism all the way through? Or because I, I do think that if the chronic absenteeism kind of comes back towards normal rapidly, that that's going to be a good indicator of normalcy, which is really hard to capture. But that's that's my hope is that we'll see that. So parents, you know, make, make sure your kids uh, <laughs> are getting to school. It's it's uh, it's a good place for them to be. I mean, I you know, we've talked problems a lot on this, but to sort of round out the show, I got to admit, I'm pretty optimistic, right? There's, we've been through a a long road, but a lot of people have some exposure in their immune systems to the virus. Uh, A a lot of people are vaccinated. We have built some cushion through a lot of pain and and suffering, but we're in a, a good place in terms of that. We have a lot of communities that I think are, are really ready to dig in and make this work. I, I hope we get some responsiveness 
from our leaders to blunt any things that sort of rise up. But what do you think? Is it Pollyanna-ish of me to start another summer and say, well, I, I think we might be on the back end of this? I No, I don't think it's Pollyanna-ish. I, I find myself mostly hopeful there. I think between some immunity, I, I, if you look at what we have now that we didn't have this time last year, we have some level of immunity amongst the population, especially amongst kids because of the Omicron wave. You have vaccines that while they're effectiveness wanes are still very effective. And those vaccines have now been extended in their availability down to under fives. We also have treatments that we didn't have. Um, and that that's significant. That means that if you do catch COVID, if it does break through the vaccine, you do find yourself in a hospital and you're struggling, there's now at least some options for treating you that we didn't have early on. So all of those point towards hopefully, and, and, and it just today, I know Pfizer submitted to the FDA, it's approval for reformulating their vaccine to make it current with some of the more, the more current variants. That's going to be also a powerful tool in the toolbox. So I, I think you're right. I, I don't think you're Pollyannish. I, I'm more optimistic on that front. What I'm also worried about, though, is just we saw the speed of an unexpected variant that can emerge and how slow our process is for trying to understand these new variants and how much of a danger or threat they are. And then just also how you were just mentioning, we were just talking about the CDC being such a lagging indicator on so much of this. And so I still worry about that. Uh, and then lastly, I do worry about the learning loss. Like I am, I was just thinking about this this morning on this this long drive that I had, this, this NWA study that came out that was looking at the pace of recovery. And they they said, if you look at the glass is half full, the kids are, are catching up. But if you look at it as a half empty, it's in some cases, it's going to take kids three to five years to catch up. And I I just, why that is not more headline news and why that is not mobilizing philanthropy and more action more aggressively, I don't know. But that that haunts me. Kids don't have five years just to catch up. And and if we know anything, this our education system has struggled under best of conditions just to keep kids learning. Doing that now and helping them accelerate, I, uh, I'm worried about. Luckily, I think there's a lot of great tools and some new innovations coming out that can be helpful there. And, but uh, that's the thing that's keeping me up at night. Cause for hope, cause for concern. John, <laughs> thanks for coming on the report card to talk uh, the new COVID uh, school year. Yeah. How would you, how would you grade this episode? Mm, B minus. B minus. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, John Bailey. We'll include a link to John's work, to his Substack, and to some of my work on the pandemic in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a second to leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. Send us comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Matt Malkins.